Hey guys, I want to give a quick shout out to Dylan, Vincent, and Voyager 1 for becoming Dr. No Sleep patrons. You three now have full access to my ad-free podcast episodes and bonus episodes. If you'd like to receive access as well, go on over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash drnosleep to sign up. That's patreon.com slash drnosleep. Now time for the story. As we entered the hospital, I looked around and saw several families with young children in the waiting area. A few of them glanced my way, and the light caught their eyes, revealing Iris's tainted a crimson hue. They glowed red like old photos that hadn't developed quite right. There were so many children experiencing the same symptoms as my daughter, Juliana, and yet I hadn't seen anything on the local news. Still, word was beginning to spread around town that there was a contagion going around, only amongst the children, at least for now. The triage nurse looked us up and down, scribbling something on a piece of paper. I handed her the necessary identification, including my Proteon company ID badge, then took a step back and waited for her questions. Symptoms? Red eyes, poorly timed laughter, odd statements. No suspicious cravings? I gulped down a dry lump in my throat, thinking about what my daughter had said that morning at the breakfast table. No, I lied. The nurse gave me a hard, cold stare for a few moments, then scribbled something and continued her questions. And how long has this been going on for? Just today. The red eye started about 20 minutes ago. That's when I brought her here. Okay, have her put on this wristband and wait over there to be called in. Don't touch anything. It shouldn't be long. My daughter snapped the band onto her wrist and it made an electric chiming sound. Two green lights lit up on either side, next to the Proteon Company logo, the mega corporation which ran the high-tech corporate town where we lived. When I first took the job in Pleasant Hills, I thought it was an idyllic, perfect place to raise a family. When the recruiter told me about the salary and benefits, I nearly jumped for joy. But now, I was coming to realize that this quaint little town was not entirely perfect. There was something spreading amongst the population, something unlike anything I'd seen or heard of before. The two of us sat down in the waiting room and my daughter began to eye the toys and books in the corner. Without asking, she stood up and wandered over to the table piled high with reading material. Juliana, I called out, but she didn't stop. A woman sitting near the book stood up quickly and moved away as if someone with leprosy were approaching. I felt a pang of anger, but realized I couldn't blame her. None of us knew what we were dealing with yet. My daughter picked up a colorful kid's book and began to leaf through the pages, scanning the print quickly with her red eyes darting back and forth. She seemed to realize the woman next to her was staring and turned her head to glare at her. Then she made a loud hissing sound like a territorial street cat. She snapped her teeth and lunged at the woman, and I jumped up and pulled her back. Juliana, no, what are you doing? She went back to looking at the book as the woman ran out of the waiting room, screaming. She's got it too. I looked over to see a man with his daughter and son. 
The three of them were dressed as if coming from church, but there was something wrong in his children's expressions, something unsettling. They were staring at me with wide, vacant grins. Their eyes were glazed over, and their teeth looked too sharp, as if being drawn out by some invisible force, being stretched into fangs. The changes were subtle, but noticeable. Yes, just today I began to see the changes. Lord help us. How long have your children? Winters, Juliana. A woman's voice called from the door to the ER, interrupting our conversation. Winters, Juliana? I stood up quickly and grabbed her hand. She brought the book with her. I'm sorry. She grabbed it before I could stop her, I said to the nurse, gesturing at the book. The woman looked unconcerned. Keep it. She was wearing a respirator mask, gloves, goggles, and a bright blue full-body protective suit as she led us into a room. A sign on the door read, Negative Pressure Room. Should I be wearing a mask? I asked her as she left. Probably, but you'd be exposed by now anyway. The doctor will be with you shortly. Exposed to what? I yelled. The door sealed shut with a hiss and a bang. The woman stood outside for a few moments, taking off her gear, but made no effort to communicate with us or answer my question. A huge window at the front of the room allowed us a view into the ER, and we watched as she disappeared into the crowds of nurses, doctors, and patients. The two of us were left in eerie silence. Juliana opened the book again and sat down cross-legged on the floor. Part of me wanted to tell her to get off the ground, since who knew what had happened in there? But she looked so innocent for those few moments, I couldn't bring myself to do it. She looked like herself again, like a normal kid, except for the red eyes glowing as she glanced up at me. The PA came on suddenly. A woman's frantic voice began to speak. Code crimson in effect, code crimson in effect. All security personnel to the emergency waiting area now. The message repeated two more times. Then the speaker cut out again. What's a code crimson, Daddy? Juliana asked, looking up from her book. Is it a fire? I don't think so, honey. I think this is something different. Just keep reading your story. A shrill scream came from outside the room, and I looked out through the large window into the ER. For a few seconds, there was nothing. My heart pounded dully in my ears, and I could feel it in my throat as I gulped down a dry lump. A woman in pale green scrubs raced past, blood shooting from a fresh wound on her arm, spraying the wall red as she ran by. She was screaming and looking over her shoulder, sprinting like her life depended on it. Gunfire could be heard from down the hall, in the waiting area where we had just been. Get down! I yelled at Juliana, running over to her. Someone's shooting! I ran over to my daughter and pulled her behind a chair which was up against the wall. The two of us hid behind it, and I heard people running past outside, but was too afraid to look. The gunfire was constant now and getting closer. I could hear things breaking outside the room from stray bullets and just hoped one wouldn't find its way to us. Daddy, I'm hungry, Juliana said quietly. Not now, honey, please. How could she be thinking of food at a time like this? I wondered to myself. More gunshots rang out, sounding very close now, 
I ventured a glance out from behind the chair we were using as cover. Through the glass, I saw men in black body armor with machine guns in their hands. They were firing rapidly and backing up, moving away from the waiting area. Security enforcement officer was written on each of their uniforms with their name beneath that. I recoiled in surprise as something leapt through the air like a wild animal, tackling one of the security guards and sending him flying backwards, his gun firing as he fell. His repeated screams were heard muffled through the door a few seconds later. It was the children with red eyes. Dozens of them from the waiting room were now rampaging throughout the ER, chasing nurses and doctors, running around on all fours like animals. A few people were on the ground, and the children appeared to be feeding on them, ripping out their throats and feasting on their bloody flesh. The power suddenly shut off with a dull click, and the ER was cast into total darkness for several long moments. I'm so hungry, Daddy, Juliana said from behind me, moving closer. The emergency lighting switched on, and everything was cast in a dim glow from above. I spun around to see my daughter moving towards me, a hungry look in her eyes. She was smiling like a hungry piranha, and I could see her teeth growing insidiously longer, drawing into needle-sharp points. What are you doing, Juliana? Stop, don't get any closer. I felt as if I shouldn't let her know how scared I was. If she could sense my fear, I worried she would lunge at me like a wild animal. Something slammed into the glass behind me, and I spun around to see a teenage boy smashing his forehead repeatedly against the window his eyes ablazing, burning red. The glass began to spiderweb and slowly crack from its center, and I heard it crunching and breaking from each impact as he bashed his skull against the window again and again. I was so caught up in the sight of it that I almost missed the reflection of my daughter lunging at me from behind. But I saw it at the last second and ducked out of the way, surprised at my own quick instincts. The glass shattered as she crashed into it and went flying through, landing hard against the boy on the other side. Something was wrong with them. Something very, very wrong. And my fight or flight instinct suddenly took over. More specifically, my flight instinct. I leapt through the broken window, broken glass piercing my palms and began to run back towards the waiting room. When I looked back, I saw my daughter and the teenage boy were scrambling to their feet, racing towards me on all fours like jungle cats, their eyes blazing red. The horrible sight of them chasing me distracted me from my route, and I found myself slipping in fresh blood, sliding, and wrenching my back as I fell in the middle of the sticky red puddle. I hit the ground hard and bit my tongue, tasting coppery blood a second later. Stay down! Someone screamed behind them and began to fire. Thankfully, I saw they weren't shooting bullets. Small syringes full of green fluid impacted nearby, missing them. But a few found their targets, and the two of them turned around, racing back towards their attacker. Their movements weren't even slowed by the heavy dose of tranquilizer. The man screamed as the two of them took him down, tearing off his black body armor and feeding on his flesh a second later. He screamed in pain and yelled at me to run. After a moment's hesitation, I began to sprint back towards the entrance where we'd come in. A pair of sliding steel doors separating the waiting area from the ER. I raced towards them, and began to hammer my fists against them, screaming to be let out. Looking up to my left, I saw a security camera pointed at me. I haven't been bit, I screamed, thinking for some reason that might be important. Maybe I'd just seen one too many zombie movies. 
please, let me out. Maybe that was the right thing to say, because the doors opened, and I burst through them a second later. Two security guards in heavy armor were on the other side. They were closing the door as I looked back through and saw my daughter racing towards us, blood smeared around her mouth like strawberry jam. Then the steel doors slammed shut. My daughter's in there! I screamed. We've gotta help her! Something impacted the steel door on the other side, deforming the metal and bending it into the shape of a child's skull. It's us you should be worried about, the security guard said. I looked around and saw the hospital was being sealed. Thick steel shutters were closing slowly, blocking out the sun, casting the waiting room into semi-darkness. Code Crimson lockdown protocols in effect, a robotic voice said from overhead. Shelter in place and do not approach the infected. Do not attempt to reason with the infected or to speak with them. Do not make eye contact. Assistance is on the way. Do not panic. Another loud bang came from the steel door separating the waiting room from the ER, and I saw a gap was forming, big enough to see through. And I peered through, looking familiar, except for the color of it, crimson like a sunset. Peekaboo, Daddy, my daughter said, giggling. <laughs> I see you. You planning on breaking those chains and just using the power of your mind? The officer asked me with a straight face. I hated to admit it, but he had me pegged. For the last 10 minutes, I'd been staring hopelessly at the manacles, which secured my legs to the hospital bed, secretly wishing I was Professor Xavier. Finally, I relaxed and let out my breath, admitting defeat. You guys know that stuff is legal, right? Not that I'm saying it was mine, but come on, give me a break. It's 2022. The two cops rolled their eyes. For recreational use, yes, the police officer on the right said. He was a bit taller than the other one, with a thick mustache and glasses. But you had close to a pound, and you tried to sell it to our undercover officer. So quit complaining. Even you know the law better than that. I remained silent, staring at the shackles, feeling hopeless. Listen, kid. You've got bigger problems than that right now, the other officer said. He was older and balding. His eyes were icy blue, and he looked at me with something akin to kindness. I immediately liked him, even though he was a cop. At least, more than the other guy who had been talking to me like I was dirt. We got word there was another dealer who wasn't happy that you were moving in on his turf. The word from our CO said you were going to have a visitor tonight. Somebody looking to remove you from the equation. The other officer gave him a hard look, as if he was saying too much. The older cop just shook his head. The kid deserves to know he's in danger. I don't care what the sergeant says. Verano's men could show up here any minute, and if they do, he needs to know what he's dealing with. Suddenly the hospital's overhead PA system clicked to life with a hiss of feedback. Attention please. Code lockdown is in effect. Code lockdown is in effect. The two cops stood up, looking nervous. The older cop was suddenly pacing the room, looking out the windows, checking his cell phone for messages. Go visit the nurse's station. See if you can find out what's going on, he told the younger guy. The other cop let out a grunt of annoyance, then left quickly. 
and I heard his feet moving rapidly down the hall away from us. After the officer left, I found myself alone with the older cop, getting more and more nervous as time ticked by on a large clock mounted to the wall opposite me. The air in the room was tense, and there was silence between the two of us while we waited for word. Finally, the officer's radio crackled to life, and a voice spoke rapidly. The sudden loud noise of it caused me to jump with fright, and the chains bit into my ankles as I had forgotten momentarily of their presence. We've got a 1032, the voice on the radio said, their breathing heavy and labored. Secure the prisoner for transport. We need to... The radio cut out, and silence filled the room again. Only the sound of the clock going tick, tick, tick could be heard once more. A gunshot rang out from down the hall, the echo of it ringing loud in my ears. A second later, there was another shot, and another, and another, then several more in rapid succession. Finally, it was quiet again, but still I didn't let out my breath. The cop in the room with me put his radio to his mouth and began to speak rapidly into the receiver. We need backup. We have an active shooter situation. Surprisingly, there was no response. Shit! He tried again and again, but there was no response from the dispatcher. It was as if they couldn't hear us or were acting like they couldn't. What the hell is going on? I asked, desperate for some shred of information. The cop had his gun drawn and looked to be preparing for an intruder. Why aren't they answering? Rano probably paid them off, like he did every other cop in this city. Kid, you thought you were just selling dope, I know. But you gotta understand who your competition is. In this town, after the dispensaries moved in, the only people really selling anymore are mob families. And they don't like having competition. Instead, they just hire a hitman to take you out. Now I was really getting scared. Even worse, I could hear footsteps moving steadily up the hall in our direction. It sounded like someone wearing dress shoes, the click of the leather soles against the linoleum soft and sturdy. Get these cuffs off my legs, please. You can't let them kill me. Someone cried out a few rooms over. Gunshots rang out again, interrupting a scream cut short. I had never heard such a terrifying sound. A blood-curdling howl silenced by the bite of a bullet. Randall? The cop said into his radio. Randall, answer me. I know you can hear me, you fat piece of shit. I have a wife, I have kids. You can't do this. A brief sound of static filled the room, followed by silence. I assumed the cop was trying to reason with a dispatcher who was silencing his calls for help. Shit. The cop pulled back the hammer on his revolver and stood away from the door getting ready in a firing stance, standing just a few feet beside me. Give me the damn keys if you're not gonna let me out of these things, please. Finally, the cop relented and threw me a set of keys from his belt. I immediately went to work with my hands, shaking badly, trying to get the locks undone. Get ready, kid. We might need to make a break for it. Tell me when you're out of those cuffs. I could tell the cop was nervous, but he looked like he had been through shit like this before. His hard blue eyes stared at the door, waiting for someone to enter. He glanced back down at me again, and in that second, the world erupted in noise and flashes of bright light. All in an instant, there were a flurry of gunshots as a figure crossed the room in a strafing blur. I saw a Kevlar vest and a masked man with a set of dual pistols, 
and then blood began to spray into the air as the cop next to me was filled with bullets. Red liquid landed warmly on my arms and on my face as he let out a howling cry of surprised anguish. The old cop was dead before he hit the ground, and I looked up to see the assassin moving in closer. I still had the key in my hand, but was far from getting even one set of handcuffs unlocked. Pretty clever, getting yourself shipped over here, the man said, his face concealed behind a ski mask. If you were in prison, at home, or hell, even just in a regular hospital, you would have been dead by now. But you made us really look for you. Who would have thought we'd finally find you in a mental hospital? I was fumbling with the keys and managed to get my feet unlocked. When I looked up, he was standing over me. One of his pistols pointed at my head, the other back in its holster. What'd you tell him to get sent here? Just so I know for future reference. You never know. I might get locked up myself one of these days, he said, a smile playing at the corners of his lips. I told him the truth, I replied, moving on to the handcuffs on my wrists, hoping he wouldn't shoot me, hoping my words might buy me a few more seconds. I told him I see things, things that shouldn't be there. The man seemed genuinely intrigued by this. You don't say. He took a step back and dropped the gun to his side. You know, I had a friend growing up. He said he could see things too. Things that weren't there. Creepy shit, clowns, dark things in the shadows. Animals like wolves, but different somehow. Hungrier and meaner. The things he said back then, they stuck with me. I've had nightmares ever since. He looked around the room suspiciously. A locker in the corner had appeared out of nowhere. It was faded green with a combination lock, looking like it belonged in the hallway of a high school, not a hospital room. It began to open of its own volition, revealing a dark emptiness inside. What the hell? That locker? That's the locker I've been seeing in my dreams since I was 10 years old. Since Dave told me about his powers. What the hell is this? Are you messing with me, kid? He pointed the gun at me, and I shook my head. No, it's not me. I can't control it. The locker opened wider, and something like laughter escaped from inside. Darkness poured out like a flood. That's not possible. It can't be. Anything but that. The man's gun dropped to the floor as something came out of the shadows inside the locker. It was a clown, tall and slender, wearing a white, black, and red polka dot outfit, baggy pants and big red shoes. He can't be you. He can't be. A second later, the clown was producing a large knife from his pocket, his smile growing wider as he stepped closer to the assassin. You're not real. This isn't real. The man was screaming, his knees buckling as his legs quaked with fear. I've been self-medicating for years, trying to dull this power inside of me, this thing that manifests your worst fears. Anyone exposed to it dies a horrible, terrifying death at the hands of their nightmares made real. Whatever is haunting me, it knows everything you're most afraid of, and it feeds on that fear. It eats it like a meal. The man stumbled backwards and fell suddenly downwards, disappearing into the ground. The floor had become an unfilled grave which he had backed himself into. Looking down from the bed, I saw dirt began to fill it in from the top as he screamed. The black soil filled his gaping mouth as he called out for mercy. And then a second later, 
The clown leapt into the grave as well. The knife clenched between his teeth. Dull screaming sounds could be heard from beneath the loose soil for a second, and then polished off white linoleum replaced the grave, and I found myself alone in the hospital room. I finished taking the cuffs off, glancing nervously at the locker as I did so, waiting for it to open again. When it didn't, I marched myself down to the nurse's station. Several staff members were huddled behind the desk, looking terrified. Is it safe? One of them asked, seeing me covered in blood standing there. Is he gone? I thought about this for a second. Well, he's gone, but it's not safe. The nurses looked confused. A utility closet door began to creak open nearby, revealing the pitch blackness inside, and a chuckle of laughter escaped from within. Huh, I guess a lot of people are scared of clowns around here. Listen, lady, we don't have much time. I'm gonna need you to draw up a syringe of Haldol or Clozapine or something. Like, right now, or you're all gonna be in a lot of trouble. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you sometimes feel like you need to get something off your chest? Everyone, including myself, carries around stress, and sometimes it builds up until it feels like you might burst. That's where BetterHelp comes in. Therapy is a safe space to talk through what's on your mind and figure out how to move forward. With BetterHelp, you can finally get things off your chest and start working through what's weighing you down. BetterHelp is entirely online, designed for convenience and flexibility to make it easy to fit your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire, get matched with a licensed therapist, and start your sessions. If your therapist isn't a perfect fit, you can easily switch at no additional charge. So why not give it a try? Therapy offers broad benefits, from reducing stress to gaining new insights. Take that step with BetterHelp and feel the relief. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com DNS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot DNS. It all started with the explosion in the containment facility at Area 51. Nobody knows exactly what caused the accident, but there were a hell of a lot of casualties. Not only that, but the base's hospital was inundated with dozens of wounded soldiers. As a nurse, that meant our quiet little military hospital was suddenly full of bleeding bodies and yelling voices. Blood was on the floors and doctors screaming for assistance could be heard ringing throughout the cramped, close quarters medical unit. My patient caseload had increased from the regular one or two sick soldiers to 10 or more, and they were all in rough shape. Worst of all was Peter. I felt bad for him immediately. Despite his horrifying injuries, he slept constantly, looking almost peaceful, aside from the occasional twitch or grimace. Nobody really knew what was wrong with him. He was in the cold storage section of the facility when the explosion happened according to the reports I'd read. His left eye was blinded, and the entire left side of his body was burnt badly. His arm was amputated after the doctors decided it wasn't salvageable. The odd part was, his flesh had begun to turn a purple color on the affected side. It reminded me of internal bleeding, that violet shade spreading insidiously from beneath the surface, indicating something much worse and much darker happening underneath. Strangely, 
there were no signs that he was bleeding internally. His hemoglobin was stable. In fact, it was rising faster than most blood loss victims. They were feeding him intravenous medication constantly, a cocktail of drugs with long, complicated names that I had never heard of before. When I asked the doctors about the meds, they told me they were top secret, experimental, and not to ask any more questions about them. Bright green, almost fluorescent bags of medication which glowed in the darkness pumped into him constantly, and I could almost see his skin beginning to glow faintly green in the night as well, his body emitting a thrumming sound like electricity. We had him sedated to keep his agony to a minimum. You can't feel pain while you're asleep, so it seemed like the most humane thing. But there are risks when you sedate someone. If you take it too far, their breathing will slow down. Their heart rate will too. And when that happens, you have to bring them back. It was during my shift when that happened. His respiratory rate dropped down below 10, then eight. He began to take long pauses between breaths. I was at the bedside, so I pulled out my stethoscope to listen to his chest. Something immediately caught my attention. A slithering, wet sound like an eel was moving around inside of him. But then it was silent and still again. Surely just my imagination, I thought, refocusing. His pulse had slowed considerably. It was close to 40 beats per minute and dropping fast. I went over to the infusion pump and paused it. After a few moments, the machine began to wail like a hungry infant left unattended. Pulling out my cell phone, I quickly called the doctor. Luckily, he wasn't far and was in the room with me a minute later standing over the patient. How are his stats? I put him on a non-rebreather, but he's still in the low 80s, I said, checking the patient's oxygen levels on the monitor. Dr. Baum was holding a stethoscope to Peter's chest, listening closely. I wanted to check with you first before we give the reversal agent. What do you think? Give him a few more minutes. Let's see if his numbers come up. Sir, are you sure? I knew from my experience that if his oxygen level stayed below 90% for long, it would cause irreversible brain damage. We needed to administer Narcan immediately. This seemed to be going against the doctor's code of do no harm. Restart the infusion, the doctor said, his face grim. Keep him under. Keep an eye on his pressure. Let me know if his numbers drop any lower. Before I could say another word, he was gone. What the hell? I muttered to myself in disbelief. He wanted me to keep the infusion going, but that meant the patient would continue to deteriorate. My fingers hovered over the restart button on the infusion pump, but I couldn't do it. Something about the whole thing felt wrong, and I didn't want to risk my license or, more importantly, the patient's life. Instead of following the doctor's instructions, I went out of the room to get a second opinion. There had to be another physician around somewhere, and they would surely recognize the need for a reversal agent. Without it, the patient would die. Unfortunately, when I got out in the hallway, I saw everyone was so busy, there was no chance of flagging down a doctor. The only other physician I could see had both hands pressed firmly into someone's sternum, blood pouring out around the sides. They were screaming for gauze and a crash cart, 
but no one was coming. My instincts took over and I left my patient for a minute to assist the doctor, knowing the situation was dire and they needed help. I fetched the crash cart and called a code blue, hitting a nearby button on the wall which sounded an alarm. I hooked up oxygen tubing and cranked the liters per minute to 20, as high as it would go. Once the oxygen mask was on the patient, I had a moment to look down. The patient was turning blue around the lips. I pushed hard on both sides of the balloon attached to the mask, forcing air into his lungs, causing his chest to rise and fall. I did this again and again, watching the monitor as his O2 levels began to increase. Finally, after several long minutes, some help arrived and I was able to leave them to their work. I went back to my patient, terrified of what I might find when I entered the room. But I never would have guessed what I saw when I walked in, never in my wildest dreams. Peter was lying on the bed, thrashing about and making muffled screaming noises. Something was covering his mouth, something plant-like and purple with branching vines. Whatever the growth was, it was coming from the stump of Peter's amputated left arm. It was spreading rapidly, moving outwards in all directions. The purple vines were growing as if in a time-lapse video, with each passing second covering more of Peter's face and the surfaces around him. The squirming, constantly shifting vines were crawling up the IV pole. With sudden, incredible force, the vines grabbed the IV pole and picked it up effortlessly. Then it was thrown violently through the window at the far side of the room, shattering into pieces. What the hell was that? I heard someone shout from outside the room. Help! I managed to yell, my voice finally working after several attempts to scream. Peter's eyes shot open, the whites of them no longer white, but instead a swirling purple. The vines propelled him upwards until he was hovering suspended in the center of the room. Then he locked eyes with me. Vines shot out from the wriggling mass, leaping at me like cobras. They wrapped around my neck and arms, squeezing hard until I could see my limbs beginning to turn purple from lack of oxygen. My fingers began to tingle as if falling asleep, the sensation turning into pins and needles and then nothing at all. My hands were a dark, violent shade of purple now, reminding me of how Peter had looked before all of this. That seemed like a hundred years ago now, but it had only been a few minutes. Just as I felt myself losing consciousness, the door burst open behind me. I managed to turn my head enough to see the vines were all over the room now, making it look like the inside of some enormous creature which had swallowed us whole. What the hell? A doctor said from the doorway before screaming loudly. Lock it down, we've got a grower. He turned around and began to run, but it was too late. A vine shot through his skull like a blade and I watched him fall lifelessly to the ground a second later. The vines began to wrap him up and envelop him, growing and spreading down his throat and into his ears. A klaxon began to howl, drowning out the sounds of my struggles. The room turned red with the light of a hazard beacon on the ceiling, and I felt the vines around my neck loosening. I looked at Peter and saw his attention had shifted to the breeze coming from the open window. He clearly wanted to escape and that was outweighing any desire he had to murder me. After a few long seconds, he finally dropped me and I fell to the floor, gasping for air. To my horror, I looked up and saw Peter climbing out the window. The vines grasped the window's edges like extra limbs, and he was outside a second later, 
the slithering mass of viney tentacles following him. The desert wind rushed in, and a blast of sand hit my face, blinding me. Then the door burst open again, and screams of horror could be heard from the security personnel in the hallway. Luckily, they had missed the worst of it, and managed to contain and kill the remaining life forms in the room using a freezing agent like a massive fire extinguisher. Afterwards, I exited the room, coughing up white dust, but thankful to be alive. Scars across my neck and wrists serve as evidence of what I've been through, despite the government's denials. I've been trying to spread the word since all of this happened, even though it meant a dishonorable discharge from the military. Some have even accused me of treason, but it doesn't matter. They can lock me up in their secret prison beneath the desert for all I care. It only matters that this gets out to the public. People need to know. They need to be ready. Something escaped from Area 51, and it won't stop until we've all been assimilated. <laughs>